So, Berto, I thought I would read a bunch of emails in response to our episodes on evolutionary psychology, and I thought we would we would debate evolutionary psychology and really, you know, once again go down that road. What do you say? Uh, it figures from your genetic code that you would say that. Yeah. Well, this is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am a professor and a licensed therapist. My name is Humberto Castaneda. I'm training for a mission to Mars. This is an email from listener Ben. He writes, I'm a new listener to your uh, podcast, and I've been listening to your back catalog. I really enjoy the show. I had some commentary on your evolutionary psychology episodes. The studies that you look at are indeed garbage in terms of their interpretation. But I have to quibble on this point. What you are objecting to is often referred to as the Santa Barbara School of Evolutionary Psychology. The UCSB School is a very specific research program with a very specific set of assumptions. However, there are evolutionary psychology approaches outside of the UCSB School that do not rely on these assumptions. I am a grad student in anthropology, and I come from a rather esoteric theoretical background known as cognitive archaeology. Cognitive archaeology has overlap with evolutionary psychology. Unfortunately, the nonsense perpetuated by the UCSB school makes everything else look bad by association. Also, popular evolutionary psychology has been promoted with quasi-religious zeal, and it's popular because it gives simple answers to complex questions. If you read books like The Moral, Anim- the Moral Animal by Wright or Blank Slate by Pinker, you'd think there's almost no question that can't be answered with evolution. Also, the UCSB version of gender roles is false if one knows anything about hunter-gatherer studies or archaeology. It's wrong in a zillion ways. In reality, hunter-gatherer societies have a wide range of behavior, some where men bring in most of the calories and some where women bring in most of the calories. Big game kills by men are also typically shared with the entire group. So how are women marrying for resources when they might already control most of it? Thoughts, Berto? What do you think? Um, I welcome I welcome the actual uh, hard work of trying to look at the data from archaeology and from the fossil records and things like that and try to marry it with modern understanding of our genetic code and try to form patterns and try to test hypotheses. And it sounds like this person might work in areas that are a little more um, rigorous scientifically, uh, but I don't know the details of their research. Yeah. So I just want to point out that he, listener Ben, is a emailer regarding evolutionary psychology that is being cool and actually providing useful information to me. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of the emails I get regarding evolutionary psychology are haters that write almost incoherent emails to me with no backup and uh, just a bunch of insults. And so I welcome listener Ben's well-written email and it's, and I've actually learned something from it. And I agree that writes moral animal and Pinker's blank slate. I mean, Pinker's Steve Pinker. I like him on some things, but on other things I'm like, wow, you are making some massive leaps, but he's extremely charismatic, which is the problem. He's like, Pinker is like Carl Sagan in some ways. I mean, some people will hate me for saying that, but Mm -hmm. if you've seen Steven Pinker talk, he is extremely, he's very prolific. He's like, um, 
he's he's like Neil deGrasse Tyson sure. uh, in terms of some scientific circles. If you saw him or heard us, you've I guarantee you you've heard him talk before, and he's very compelling. And again, on some subjects, I agree. On others, I'm just like wow. Anyway. So, yes, there are many other fields, as listener Ben is talking about, that are similar to evolutionary psychology. Let me read a few. Behavioral ecology, ethology, sociobiology, behavioral genetics, evolutionary developmental psychology, biocultural evolution, evolutionary anthropology, Darwinian anthropology, evolutionary neuroscience, and many others. So, and that's the one thing that I feel like a lot of people outside of certain disciplines don't understand, is that... When we say evolutionary psychology, we're actually referring to thousands of people in very specific camps within that discipline. Do you know what I mean? Sure, and yeah. some people would hate being labeled evolutionary psychologists. They would prefer to be called, as this guy, a cognitive archaeologist. You know, So uh, that's always just a fascinating thing when you start going down a particular road. You think, oh, there's this there's probably like 10 evolutionary psychologists and they all agree and they're all talking about this thing. And it's just like, when you look into it, you're like, wow, it's like a whole field of like different ideas and a history and debates going back and forth and methodologies and blah, blah, blah. So, uh, I'll also say that, um, as I agree with listener Ben, that most evolutionary psychology in the media is crap. If you've listened to the podcast, you've heard me say that many times. Even respectable people in my field promote dubious evolutionary psychology crap. For example, I was listening to an interview with Helen Fisher yesterday. Do you know Helen Fisher? She's kind of a famous person. She's, she's probably the most renowned researcher regarding the, evolutionary, the evolution of sexual attraction and, and attachment. She's written a – I think I have her book. I think it's called Why We Love – and she's, she's given a lot of TED Talks. I've seen her talks. I didn't remember her name, but now I know who you're talking about. Yeah. So, right. So, you as a non-person. As a non-person. <laughs> as a non-psychology person. Is a non-person someone who loves Indian food? <laughs> oh, that's good. Funny. Um, so, no, it means you're very floppy and smell, <laughs> smell of dough. Um uh, she, she's written very popular books in psychology, and I have some of, the, some of those books. But in the interview I was listening to yesterday, she was very convincing, and she was quite sure of her claims. She was saying that there were two types of people. There were estrogen people. I'm not even joking here. Mm-hmm. This is her terminology. There were estrogen people, and there are, guess what? Testosterone, testosterone people. people. Wait, are they, is one from Mars and one from Venus? Exactly. It's basically exactly the same. Estrogen people have these traits, and testosterone people have these traits. And she was saying that we evolved to be this way because it helped us to get mates and propagate our genes. Now, I'm not a biologist, but even I know enough to know that this is reductive evolutionary psychology crap. So even respectable scientists are, and she's a respected scientist in our field, even them are saying a bunch of reductive bullshit about uh, regarding psychology and evolution. I'm guessing they do it to get media attention. No one wants to interview someone who says, well, we really don't know any answer to that question. They also don't want to hear answers like, it's very nuanced. Let me explain the philosophy of science and the philosophy of personality. No one wants to hear that. They want a tagline. They want a quick and dirty answer. And seemingly everyone wants to hear the quick and dirty answers like, 
Well, you know, men think about sex every seven seconds because they evolved to spread their sperm all over the place. You know, everyone wants to hear something like that. No one wants to hear someone like me say, uh, that's reductive and there's, it's dubious and I'd like to see the research on that. And right. if you actually look at the research that that statement is based on, it doesn't even say that. Uh, you know, anyway. So... Um, that. So, because like usually the main complaint I have when you and I get into debates about this stuff, uh, I guess I haven't crystallized what the main complaint is before, but I will now. Um, I often find uh, things where I say, hey, this thing might be true. And uh, you say, well, that could just as easily be society. So I have since refined it to say, I'm definitely... I'm definitely on your camp that it's on the side of like, hey, it's so hard to prove or test any of these things out because of of the fact that we can't really run longitudinal studies over eons and things like that. But but I don't want to rule out society as part of the equation, meaning uh, not only do I agree with you that a lot of things could be society, but I'm going to say, well, society has evolved too. And so it's all kind of interconnected. And so I think that studying things, asking questions like, why are so many people... Oh, first of all, are, are, are a lot of people afraid of the dark? If they are, why are they afraid of the dark? And then coming up with possible explanations due to you know how societies have evolved, what it used to mean in the dark, and blah, 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 blah. I like those things. Yeah. And I like the rigorous approach to it. Right. So speculation, go for it. You know, that's fun. We can speculate and go... And then at the very end of that speculation, we can say, we'll never know the answer to that question because we just lack the data to you know to uh, to corroborate it. Now the other thing is is you're, what we've talked about before is I think I've convinced you to get off of the biology perspective and into the social psychology perspective, which is look there are phenomena within human psychology and within groups of people that seem to hold water. Like men seem to be. Um, they they seem to think about sex more than women do, and you know, on average, right? And why is that? Now, you're I think before all the debates we've had about about science and you know the scientific method and about data gathering and about how we would even answer that question biologically speaking, you would have gone to the biology uh, answer to that. Said, so, well, that's just the way men are. That's it's it's DNA. It's you know it's how we evolved, and over time. I think I've convinced you that it's like, well, maybe, but but we don't know. But we definitely can still say some things, and that is is that there are differences at times between men and women. Yeah, I, I think uh, – and then where the part where I've seen – not a lot, but I've seen a few uh, compelling scientific presentations on YouTube that are biology-based is where they actually test – at the orga- organic, sorry, at the functional level, things like what can human eyes on average do and not do, and, and wh- which animals have similar properties, and what kind of environments do those seem to, like all these kind of things, that to me is very interesting as well. Right. Because they're, they're actually like, oh, guess what? We can't tell th- when things move at a certain angle, and uh, other animals can. And what does that difference mean? And what, you know. Right. And, so. and what does that mean perhaps about our natural state? We evolved these very articulate hands. Yeah. Why did we evolve that? It's 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 a fascinating thing to think about. Like, why would we have a number a base ten system, and why do we have you know like there's a lot of actual things that have developed in our society and culture right. that are a result of either limitations or abilities that we have, right. and those are interesting. Yeah. 
Now, the other thing I want to point out is that there's this massive myth that researchers are smart. <laughs> I just want to point that out. You know, before I was a doctor, before I was, you know, got my doctorate, I used to see uh, physicians and other people with doctorates as just so smart. I just spent, man, those guys, those women, they must, they just, they just have this sea of knowledge available to them. They're, they're so smart. When they say something, man, you, you just gotta, you just gotta take it, man. They, they've <laughs> been through it. Well, I'm telling you, I've been through it and I know, I know nothing. <laughs> I know nothing. And when I, now when I go to the doctor, I'm, I'm looking at a peer. When I go to a physician, I'm like, well, you did the same amount of education, maybe even less than I than I did in psychology, in medicine, and I just know that you're just flying by the seat of your pants as much as I am when I'm when I'm treating people. Now, medicine is different than psychology, and there are things you know in that, some areas, in some areas, but but in, you know in a lot of areas, it's like, well, you know, we're well, let's see what this does, or let's. Oh, well, I I I have experienced that firsthand because. Um, so when it comes to thyroid issues and uh, autoimmune issues, there is there is such lack of understanding, right? <laughs> and there's this and there's this sort of need by us to say like, well, someone must know the answer to that because right. if if no one knows the answer to that, I'm that, screwed. Then I'm screwed, <laughs> right? But I'm here to tell you, we're screwed. You know, we, it's it's going to be you know decades or you know centuries before we answer some of the questions that we think we have answered today. And I'm here to tell you that we have it. And so it's similarly researchers who actually get articles published in respectable journals. These people are just human beings with all the, you know, my guess is, is that the curve of IQ is just slightly to the right in terms of the average population. So there are researchers with below average IQ. Believe me, I've met them. And they manage to get through school because they're just very good students and they have very good study skills and they're, they have perhaps just enough to get by. And plus, culture, you know, you can be a genius and not understand how your cultural lens is affecting you, you know? You could be the most smartest person on the planet and still be a racist. Now, you're probably less likely to be a racist if you're super smart, but... Being intelligent doesn't automatically mean the shackles of the scales will fall from your eyes <laughs> and you will see reality for what it is. Right. You know, when you have a bias, it's going to affect your research. It's going to affect the, the biases that you have. So I want to read another email from patron Tanya. In fact, I, sorry, I, I, I tend to distrust when folks make statements about it just how incorruptible or unbiased they are. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> it's like, oh, really? Right. That's your first clue that they're massively <laughs> fucking biased. <laughs> I mean, the one, the first, the first rule of understanding uh, bias is to know that you're extremely biased, you know? And like, and for me, I will always start by saying things like, well, but I'm coming from a particular place right. in history and time. If I was born another time, I'd, I'd be saying other things. Like, you know, we were saying in another episode, if, if I grew up in 1600s United States or 1700s United States and, and I was all white, I would have been like, yeah, slavery. Uh-huh. You know, I would like to think I would be anti-slavery, right. but I would have been a part of my culture and I would have been taught a whole set of ideas that 
would have indoctrinated me into an idea that slavery was acceptable. Now, there were very few rare individuals who were anti-slavery, but but not enough, you know? Right. And so, in a similar way, you just have to wonder, I wonder what ideology I've been indoctrinated into in my time in history, that 200 years from now, they'll look back at me and said, Kirk Honda was... An anti-evolutionary psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> Patron Tanya... Uh, wrote in and said, I want to take the time to send you a quick note telling you how much I enjoy your podcast. Your ability to appear unbiased to a particular subject while expressing your honest opinion at the same time is one of my favorite things about your show. For instance, your views on evolutionary psychology. Your podcast on the theory of love was uh, also a good example. I think that book actually was written by, or no, no, was that written? But no, that was written by. You had plenty of critique on the author's delivery of the subject, but also made a point to mention the reviews from people who said that the book changed their lives, and the fact, and that fact alone made the book very valuable. Thank you for that. Right. So, Patriotania is pointing out that I was critiquing a book not by Helen Fisher, but a similar kind of popular book about love and biology. And I was pointing out the things that I agreed with, and I was pointing out the things that didn't have a lot of data for, and some of the perhaps dangerous things that they were saying. Not dangerous, dangerous, but perhaps not helpful. And at the very end, I think, of the episode, I read some online reviews of the book and pointed out that for some people, it it was a, you know, a life-changing book for them for the, in a positive way, in a way that isn't bad, like... And now I'm racist. You know, it was like, now I feel better about myself. I feel normal. I understand myself better, you know. And so the value of that book is, is unquestionable. You, you, it's a valuable book. It's helpful to people and has some, you know, perhaps dubious statements in it. And so it's like uh, Batman v Superman. Yeah. Actually, someone asked us to do another episode on that. So, and I actually was going to rewatch it because they were asking about like, what do we think about? the moment where uh, Batman or where Superman says to Batman, the mom yeah, yeah. and whether or not that made, Martha, any, that made any sense. Why did you say that name? Yeah. Um, okay. So an iTunes comment, iTunes, you can comment on iTunes. It's always great when people do that because it raises us in the, that's right. In the rankings. And so, so you, this iTunes commenter says, thank you for your debate and pushback against evolutionary psychology. Evolutionary psychology is a fad. It has some kind of publishing power that is transforming the paradigm on psychology. Many people I know who know nothing of psychology believe it to be the new standard. Keep pushing against the lie, and I will do the same. All right, iTunes commenter. Uh, dig it. Email from listener. Doc- I, I, I wonder, though. Oh, what? Is there a bias that some traditional, more traditional folks feel threatened by... You know, the new be, biology, the new biology. Yeah, absolutely. That is absolutely true. I have seen people who are biased against newfangled ideas that are particularly in love and j- with their old fashioned ideas sure. and who will just, you know, the thing that I say is I actually agree with the premises of evolutionary psychology. Right, right, right. The idea that we evolved particular psychological mechanisms that were beneficial mm-hmm. to survival and to sexual reproduction is 
a no-brainer. Yeah. Uh, f- forgive the pun. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, of course, it makes sense for us to perhaps, you know, for us to prefer people who look like they could reproduce better than some, you know, yeah, yeah. when men look at a woman and she looks like she is of childbearing age right. and not before, she looks like she's not about to fall apart from, <laughs> from disease. She looks like she can communicate well. and Poop smells bad. Yeah. Why does poop smell bad? Right, exactly. Why do we like fats and sugars? Right. What, you know, and it's all because we're sexist. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> it, there are, unden- you know, when we look at animals, they obviously have right. these instincts right. that... You're, but, but, but your thing is, like, prove it with actual data and experiments well, if you could. Well, a lot of the things that I just mentioned do have a good amount of data sure. around it. But the things that I'm telling you that these evolutionary psychologists will will talk about, it's absurd. I mean, when you actually look at the evolutionary psychology uh, research and what's being claimed in the media, for instance, it, it that we as men evolved to sexually harass women at work, which I'm not joking, is something that evolutionary psychologists have claimed. Well, that one makes sense. Yeah. It's like... <laughs> Uh, what? You know, like men evolved to sexually harass women at work. Okay. Or men evolved to be better at work, to be better in business than women. Sure. Uh, women evolved a mechanism that when they hear a clock ticking, they start worrying about having a baby. Sure. Not even joking. This yeah, yeah. is, we talked about that this <laughs> is research that people spend presumably a couple of years of their life uh, designing and, and, and gathering data right. and getting the funds for and publishing. And then a group of very, you know, accomplished editors uh, read this over and, you know, send it back for rewrites and then decide, yes, this, this study has been deemed among hundreds of other studies that were submitted, incidentally. This one is being, you know, for every journal article that's actually published, there, there, are, there are journals that will say, we have a... A ten percent acceptance rate uh-huh. of ten, you know, articles that are submitted uh, at their final draft. We only we only publish you know one out of ten, or even less than that. So that's the crap I'm talking about, not the broad sweeps of the obvious yeah, things. Yeah. You know, anyway. This is an email from Dr. John. Dr. John writes, Dear Kirk, I just finished reading your article, A Critique of Evolutionary Psychology, and I was amazed at the lack of scientific discipline in that field of study. I am a physician and surgeon specialized in emergency medicine and in the process of writing a book entitled Human Nature, hence my delving into books in in your arena. And I am finding that the discussions on evolutionary psychology are useless so again, wow. here's a physician and surgeon looking into the topic and saying that he agrees with me. Basically, the whole rest of this episode is me just reading. But you know, know those, those <laughs> surgeons, they should be ones to talk. They randomly remove bits of flesh out of people hoping that it does something. I know, right? I mean, geez. I mean, where's <laughs> the data on that one? Email from listener Susan. I enjoy your podcast. My 16-year-old son overheard me listening to your episode titled, evolutionary psychology is crap while I was cooking dinner 
and he actually put his iPhone down and made us listen to the rest of your podcast while we ate. <laughs> I just love that visual of just like family, you know, cooking dinner, and then the kids, you know, he's playing Pokemon Go or whatever, and he's like, wait a second. We got to listen to this episode. You and me just ranting and raving about <laughs> well, but you know, shit. back in the Savannah days, if you had some new information, you would want everyone to hear it. Yeah. You evolved to put down your iPhone. And That's listen. right. Uh, email from Learning to Life on YouTube. I don't know. I fully agree with your comments about the studies having insufficient population samples to base many of these conclusions on. It's, ref- it's refreshing to listen to some critical thinking applied to academic literature. As far as your remarks about being unable to separate culture from biology, I agree that you can't, but should we have to? Evolution is about adopting, uh, I think they meant adapting, adapting to environmental stimulus, and culture is an environmental stimulus. I imagine that if we ever get to the point scientifically where we can test these things, however unlikely that is, it would become painfully complex. Thanks again for another great episode. What are your thoughts about that, Berto? Yeah, I mean, so there's, what's those um, birds that uh, have taught, uh, there was a bird that learned a new technique for cracking something and then they moved, migrated, and then a whole new generation of birds learned. Right. Okay, so in that case... You know, things we couldn't conclude. We can't conclude that, you know, if we saw a bird cracking the thing, we can't say, oh, through millions of years of evolution, they learned, you know, that cracking... No, no, it was actually... Through millions of years of evolution, they gained the the skills required to retain knowledge and then pass it to others. And, And so, there are things you can conclude and things you can't conclude, right? But society, like which is that bird's society, now has a little factoid that they can use, which is, oh, hey, we, we dropped this rock. And of course, we're so much more complex. But what I've said, and I feel is the spirit of some of what, what she, is it a she, what she's saying, is uh, basically, they are interconnected. We shouldn't fear, like, it's just very complex, but we shouldn't fear studying, like, you know, some of this might be learned over generation over generation. Some of it might be even older than that genetically. And so forth. So I, I think I agree with that. I like it. I like what you're saying. Email from Patron Linden. You know Patron Linden, right? Yep. Uh, you gave some of the Evo Psych stuff short shrift. It would be interesting to hear maybe a short episode on how you developed and trained your critical faculties, your conception of good methodology, etc. Well, I'll tell you, you have to study research one. To be able to really critique research and really even understand it, you really have to study research. You have to become familiar with statistics, with research methodologies. You might even have to conduct research yourself to really fully understand the process because it's extremely complex unless you've been through it. You have to watch others actually conduct research to become familiar with exactly how it takes place. For instance, before I studied it, I figured all psychology research was super super sound and super buttoned up, but it's not. A lot of it is very floppy and easily refuted by another researcher. It's very difficult to isolate variables in psychology, and therefore it's very difficult to make any firm conclusions in our field, particularly the kinds of topics that some people study. But many researchers will lose their jobs if they don't make firm conclusions and actually get get, uh, published. And that is why when you dig into many studies, particularly in evolutionary psychology, you find a lot of crap. But anyway, you have to, you have to study research and you have to, you have to have a mentor in the field who is a 
intelligent, wise critiquer of science. I had a such a mentor in Dr. Phil Cushman, who is a massive critic of psychology and, and uh, of our society. And he his 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 classes that I took with him were three hours long, and he would just sit there and talk with us for three hours. <laughs> no PowerPoint, no assignments. He would just sit there and in a, we were in a circle and he would just he would just launch and every word was well thought out and you know you're at you're just riveted you're just like what is he saying he i mean at the end of his talks i would feel like i wasn't standing on firm ground any like literally i felt like <laughs> the world was not secure the world was squishy because he was tearing down so many givens and understandings in our culture he was eliminating the foundation of my life to some extent <laughs> and and that really helped me i see that's interesting so something that's coming down the line uh for fields like medicine psychology law and many other fields that where you know when you're a lawyer a lot of what you have to do outside of the courtroom involves uh reading a ton of back cases, this at least in the U.S. court system, legal system, and then trying to remember what might connect to what, and then trying to basically say, ah, you know, because of this finding, this held, and therefore you should uh, acquit this client or whatever, right? Um, And humans are not good at this. I mean, that's a weird thing to say. By comparison to what computers can do, humans are not good at that. We're obviously good at it compared to almost every unless, other. Unless it's your creature. job, like you're a constitutional lawyer, then yes, it's it's not the it's not the default mode. The process of reading millions of words and pages, memorizing them, and then remembering all the patterns is not actually what the human brain's great at, right? Compared to a computer. So what happens is with uh, these new techniques, new is weird because they've been around since the 50s, but uh, deep learning in machines, what you can now start to do is you point the machines to the millions and millions and millions of court documents. And you basically can train it to ask or to answer simple questions of pattern recognition. And so the thing that you would have had to be like this great memory guides, now it's like the computer will be able to deliver to you the, the, the patterns. In, in medicine, similarly, you know, a lot of what a doctor has to do for diagnosing is remembering all their training and all the details and, oh, but, they, but he had a weird spec. And most of the details, by the way, go unnoticed because no one's Sherlock Holmes in real life, right? But what are computers really good at? Same kind of thing. So what, what's going to start happening is the job of a lot of these fields is going to move from... Uh, the person that's really good at remembering facts and putting them together to the person that's really good at being very detailed at capturing as much data as possible, as consistently as possible, and feeding that into the systems. Because we actually don't know what all the correlations are. The systems can find those correlations. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, have, I don't have as much faith in that model of discovery to discover things in psychology and ev- evolutionary psychology undoubtedly it would help but the prob- the the difference between medicine and psychology is that in medicine you're looking f- you're you're taking symptoms and clues and trying to diagnose someone and like you said 
not one person can't hold all the research and right. all the probabilities and all the different combinations of symptoms and all the questions to ask the way a computer can. But when it comes to psychology, the computer is only as good as what you put into it. But that's what I, that's exactly what I'm saying is, so imagine this. Today, when you're going to do an experiment for psychology or almost anything else, a lot of the difficulty is not only, as you were saying, in picking the right, um, how do you call it, sample size and the sample, you know, like who are my sampling? And then what questions am I asking that are not biased and that don't tip the scales and all these kind of things, right? But you usually, because of all those complexities, you usually can't do it on too many people. Because it's, it's very expensive, you know, and you have to have a control group. And then as a human observer and documenter, you can only observe and document so much about those interactions. You weren't paying attention to all the little nervous twitches of the eyes and the things. But what, but what you can do, not right now, but you will be able to at some point soonish in the future, you have cameras set up, you have microphones set up, you have way more people and you're capturing Every bit of data, and you don't know which bits of data are relevant or not. But what you do define as the researcher is you define what are the the functions you're trying to control for. Like you're trying to say uh, control for patterns of anger or something. I'm making shit up. And then in the end, you might end up with surprising results that say, oh, it turns out that people who twitch their nose are angry. And now the the downside of this approach... report there. Yeah, yeah. The downside of these approaches is, like you said... It, the onus is now on the on setting it up and 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 really being careful and meticulous about what you're capturing but the power of it is that humans cannot possibly pattern match to the capacity that these systems could right uh, and with regards to evolution my guess is is when we actually make leaps will be when we can actually measure neurons with more accuracy and more reliability. Currently, it's functional MRIs which are being utilized. But if you read the uh, the very valid critiques of that method of science, you will find that we are that that form of measurement is is fine for where we're at because we don't have really a lot of other ways of of measuring quote unquote brain activity. But it is not a good measure uh, to to follow and. A lot of these studies have sample sizes of like 15 people, and they're looking at, you know, average slight differences. Is that where, like, they say, oh, this area of the brain did something when they did something? Right. And you're saying that, the, that those well, techniques are, are, are... Right. So, so let, me just, let me just give you a very brief critique on that, mm-hmm. is they're measuring, I believe, oxygen levels, which is correlated with, quote-unquote, activity. And the reason why I say, quote-unquote, activity is because we don't really know if that means anything like what what if in the future we find that one connection can cause something to happen like one neuron firing to another neuron can cause you to fall in love (laughs) for instance or or whatever you know what if that's all it takes well the fmris measure very global kinds of act you know quote-unquote act you know oxygen or you know changes and it's not even like the the other thing is is the brain all the brain is constantly working. Yep. It's not like when when you see these images, you're like, oh, this this is the part of the brain that's working. Well, that's just the part of the brain that's showing a particular variable that's different. the The whole brain is working all the time, and so maybe part of the brain it doesn't need to work hard in order for it to do something. Right. So there's all sorts of problems, and like I said, when they present findings, 
they'll have a sample because it's very expensive to do fMRIs. I mean, you have to get people in there. You got to hook them up to the thing. You got to blah blah blah. And so we're talking about fifteen people, and then we're talking about slight differences. Now there are some things that we're starting to see for the very first time. You know, like oh, this is where vision is. You know, and this yeah. is where your executive, and this is where fear is, and this is you know, there are things that they're finding. But yeah. in terms of being able to say anything meaningful from that, uh, aside from uh, s- some very important things that they are f- finding, you know, like I won't go into all that. But but anyway, we're we're a far what what my uh, I imagine is some some way of imaging on the neuronal level what's Every every particular neuron would would help, you know. Yeah. And even then, my guess is we would have to go even deeper to inside each neuron. Is my guess because just a neuron firing isn't perhaps enough resolution. We'd have to know because when you actually study neur- neuronal uh, processes, there it's so complex. Right. What is happening in each one of your neurons is just a sea of magic. I mean, there, when you learn cellular biology of the brain, you're just like, holy F man, we are complicated creatures. And what a, what a magical thing that we, out of that craziness and molecules that we have a consciousness. It's just crazy. So anyway, another message from a listener and this listener did not like, what we were saying or what I was saying about evolutionary psychology. We all know that men are more promiscuous than women. I think we can see that in nature. For example, female lions are the main breadwinners in, in that they get all the meat to eat. Yet one male lion copulates with many of them while they only mate with that one male lion. I think sexuality is more evolution than culture. Berto, what do you think about that? Um, well, again, Channeling you, uh, <laughs> I, I look. I intuitively, I've said many times before. I, uh, based on my own biology, and I don't mean like my social expectation. I mean the feelings I feel inside. Yeah, I know that I have things firing, chemicals firing a lot. And when I look around, I think, hmm, I don't think that everyone, especially not a lot of the females. But again, I'm guessing. I don't know. I'm not in their side. Their bodies, right? So. Would I go along with a hypothesis of like, yeah, I think males just might have more testosterone or whatever cruising in it, and we could see this in nature? Yes. That said, testing it and forming an, even an experiment that, that works is really hard. Yeah. And also then, to, to your point, the conclusion that you can get from that, I think you've, you've convinced me that there are many leaps that are taken right. from what might have been a simple conclusion like, okay... It feels like uh, out of all species we've evaluated, 70% of them, males produce more of these hormones that are linked with sexual response. Okay. Therefore, (laughs) males evolve to harass females in corporate computer, uh, you know. (laughs) Or even males are more horny than women, like like you're contending. Even that is impossible for me to even say because – Every culture in around the globe has a culture around sexuality, and the vast majority, if not all of them, are oppressive to women's sexuality. Sure. I mean, some cultures go so far as to cut off the sexual organs of a woman. Sure. So, 
you know, and, and little, it could have been it could have been that originally, meaning millions of years ago, maybe women were more horny, and then men, because they were physically more imposing, got threatened by that and right. started and created a culture yeah. that they passed down, like the birds who passed down yeah. that knowledge, as a way of keeping society together or whatever, yeah. whatever reason they had in the past, and so there's just no way to know. The only the only possible way we could answer that question well would be to raise humans in captivity under different conditions. Yeah. Or if we had advanced enough simulations to a level where we felt we could conclude some things. Which, yeah. you know, would be hard to verify. Yeah. But, yeah, at some very distant yeah. future, perhaps. Or we had a time machine and could go back in time and see each incremental change yeah. in behavior related to biology, but we just can't do that. And so we can make some speculations. But then culture can also be used, I think, as as a counterexamples to prove a point, um, maybe not conclusively, but here's an example. Uh, Catholic uh, uh, monasteries and convents, right? The reported uh, numbers of um, uh, molestation on the male side even though both males and females are supposed to not be sexual, and both of them are supposed to not be sexual for the same kind of holy reasons, right? Um, yet there is there is a complete, not a, a zero, but there's a very low incidence of the reports of the sexual abuse on the female side and very high on the male side. So it's interesting, two cultures, or the same culture but two different groups, and one of them has different output than the other. And so it's interesting to look at stuff like that, too. Absolutely. Fascinating. Which is, what do we conclude from it, is always yeah. the, the bias, usually. Yeah. So when I reviewed all the different emails I've received on evolutionary psychology, I wanted to find one that was a critique. Because I've been saying, the one critique I've had is actually kind of a boob, you know, talking about lions as some kind of like massive slam dunk of evolutionary yeah. psychology. It's just like, come on, pal. Like, that's not compelling. But anyway, I wanted to find someone who was critical of me that I could hold up as someone that is potentially has something to say. So I, I had to go back three years to 2013 to find someone that I could actually respect their points. Um, and they're saying, I just listened to your second podcast on evolutionary psychology and found your characterization of the field to be, to be very poor. And your paper is really poor too. I think you have poorly characterized the field. For instance, you challenge only minor papers as opposed to those with high sight counts. So I won't go into the rest of the email, but the he's basically, uh, he has a good point. I, I am. I'm absolutely uh, presenting the bad side of evolutionary psychology. I'm not holding up the... Mm-hmm. the well, actually, in the paper, I do talk about some uh, studies, for instance, regarding how... Uh, well, anyway, I won't go into the deals. But, you know, yeah. there. If you If I wanted to really hold up evolutionary psychology, I could have chose, uh, I could have cherry-picked different uh, studies. But I have to say, this. I have to say, when I started down the evolutionary psychology path a number of years ago, it wasn't that long ago, it was probably just a few years ago, I, I didn't know much about it, but I actually thought it was good. I, the little I knew about evolutionary psychology, I was like, yay, I'm going to learn all this really great stuff. It's going to be really great. Right. So I entered it biased for it. Yeah. I, I was not, absolutely not looking to critique it. 
But when I started to read these studies, I was like, what the crap is this? Sure. And then and then I was like looking for any mention of limitation of like, look, culture might play a role. And yeah, they yeah. just wouldn't even mention it. I was like, okay, well, that was a bad study. And then I... And then you found too many. And then I just look at the next one. I was like, are you kidding me? Okay, I must be looking in the wrong spot, you know, and open up another journal. What is... What's this person saying? Holy crap, these people are going way out there in terms of their speculation and not even calling it speculation. And and over time, without any influence from anyone outside of me, because I was just sitting there in front of my computer reading this stuff, and what came out of me was a critique of it. And then I found, and I didn't realize that in the broader society and in, in my field, it's actually a debated topic. I didn't even know it was debated. And mm-hmm. so I totally independently came out with a critique and suddenly found myself in the middle of this crossfire between these two groups of people that I didn't even know existed. So that should say something, do you know what I mean, about, yeah, right. about the validity of, of my position. Um, but I also want to say that I went back and forth with this person because I was like, thank you so much for emailing me and not calling me a mangina <laughs> or not being a dick about it. You're actually trying to critique my paper. You sound like you're a smart guy because he's actually talking about site counts and about sample sizes and different kinds of research designs. And he's saying, sure. look, I have, design- I have research that actually follows rigorous design. And I was like, great, I have a guy, because part of me is like looking for that guy or woman who can critique my critique and actually convince me that I'm wrong. I'm looking right. for someone to convince me because I hear all these critiques and I'm like, well, obviously there's a, there's, there must be some validity to that. Please tell me what that is so I can, because I'm always like, I, I'll change my position if you convince me of that. Well, but but it seems like at this point it's it's silly because um, it's as you said, your position isn't there can be no truth in evolutionary studies of psychology. Your position is simply like, look, there's a lot of problems in that field because a lot of those papers and and researchers are not doing their job well. Here's a whole bunch of examples. Now, if someone wants to say, well, here's a whole bunch of good examples, well, that's good to highlight. Right. So I asked him, please go through my paper and find one thing that I said that is critiquable. Please, you know, you said, you know, quote unquote, your paper is really poor is what he said. So I was like, okay, great. Find, find something that I said that mm-hmm. you can refute because I'll revise it. I want that paper to be as best as it can be. I want it to be convincing to people like you. Right, right, right. So by all means, tell me where I went wrong. And guess what? Not a single thing. Did he not follow up? Or Oh, he followed up. We went back and forth. Well, you know, blah, blah. I've done, the, uh, there's been, there have been other people who have, I've emailed with too. As soon as I, because I get emails about this all the time, and I'll be like, "Okay, good, you know, just help me, help yeah. me, help you." And, and listen to a podcast. Find a point where I said something, you know, that's you could refute and criticize, and then I'll know what you guys are talking about. Right. And I have heard nothing, not a single thing from these people. They haven't said. Now, if you're one of those people out there. Go through my paper. It's online. Go to Psychology in Seattle. It's in the article section. Critique. You, actually, if you Google critique of evolutionary psychology, I think my article is the first thing that comes up. <laughs> it's like it's like a very popular paper. It's it's what drives most people to our website, which oh, is which is funny. Yeah, and I I challenge you to find one thing in there. And I don't claim to be an awesome writer. And right. honestly, I didn't do that much research before I re- before I wrote that paper. 
I mean, it was definitely a rabbit hole I went down. But, you know, I, did I spend five years of my life, you know, researching and writing? No. So by all means, find something. And every time I do that with something, they're always like, uh, well, you know, and, and they'll pull back. They, they won't say that. Anyway. Another person who has some critique to say, uh, patron Mike. Dr. Honda, I love the podcast. I agree on most things, but wanted to take an issue with a couple things. You assert that Dan Savage's claim that non-monogamy has a biological basis and is not supported by science. As a Lovecast listener, I wanted to respond that he references a couple books. Why is the Penis Shaped Like That by Jesse Baring and Sex at Dawn by Christopher Ryan? Is the evolutionary biology basis for support of non-monogamy incorrect or non-scientific in those books? I'd love to hear your thoughts because you were quite dismissive of there being a scientific basis. Um, Patron Mike goes on to say that he agrees with some of the things I was saying. But then he says, women are better at overruling their lizard brain while men tend to be, while men tend to let their lizard brain take their actions. What do you think, Doc? Am I mixing things up here? Berto, what do you think? Um, so this is an inter- interesting one. Um, you, could, you could somehow look at uh, society and say, well, uh, there are a lot of reasons why over the millennia Societies evolved to encourage monogamy. You know, it, there's practical reasons. You know, it, it tends to produce a stable kind of set of wor- working and living people. There's and, no- and there are other species that exhibit that behavior. Oh, but that's see, that's what I was going to say. Is like I, I would have stopped at society with monogamy if you didn't see monogamy in other species. But you do in even in simple species, right? Not I'm not saying all species. I'm saying, but you do see it in other species. So then I, I thought, oh, okay. So if you see monogamy in other species, then it cannot be a societal only. It, it might be for humans, but it cannot possibly only be a human society imposed concept, because you see monogamy in species that have way less human traits and human things in common with humans. In other words, there's there's evidence there that shows you cannot prove that monogamy could have never sprung in other species right. because it has. Right. Now, that's without human society. Right. Now, at the same time, you cannot prove conclusively that monogamy would have developed in humans without society. And I think the same is true for polygamy. Or not polygamy. For non-monogamy. Non-monogamy. Yeah. Right. First off, I want to say Dan Savage, have always loved him. I've met him. I've, you know, he's just, I'm Seattle. He's Seattle. Uh, you know, I, I, I grew up reading The Stranger before it was like a thing when it was like a very minor, you know, crappy magazine in Seattle and would read his, his, um, uh, what's his, uh, Savage Love. Yeah. Uh, I remember reading that like in the early nineties, I think. And, and so I'm a huge fan of his. He does wonderful things for our society and, the history books will point to him as a pivotal person in changing our our society and maybe the world. Um, and uh, but the other thing is is like just this statement: women are better at overruling their lizard brain, while men tend more to let their lizard brain drive their actions. There now, patron Mike, if that is how you see the world, I love it. Just like the way, you know, if, if that's your observation, if that's how you feel like things, Berto has said similar things. If that's your point of view, great. But that's not a scientific statement. 
you know, what is the lizard brain, one. Two, how do you measure drive their actions, right? right. I mean, lizard brain involves the amygdala, you know. Do, would you say women are more afraid or men are more afraid? You know, so, you know, what do we exhibit? Men in our culture exhibit more sexual, more overt sexuality or more kind of, you know, asks for more sexuality than women do. That's what you can say. Is that derived from the brain, from biology, unknown? Uh, meaning that if left to our own, that's that's the whole thing about that, that, you could claim like, well, women women give in more to their fears than men do, and that's a lizard brain thing. Right. So, right. So it's hard to like we've been saying this whole podcast. It's really just hard to to measure that sort of thing, and. When you really study culture and society and socialization, you realize that there are so many things, and this is not new. This has been talked about for centuries. You, it's really hard to know what is humans' natural state because we're so we're so indoctrinated from day one into a culture, into a way of thinking, into a way of talking. You know, there are ideas, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it's if it's accurate or not that there are societies in history that didn't know the color blue because the color blue doesn't yeah. exist very often we were in, talking in nature. About that. Yep. And therefore, they don't see blue. Like their, the biology of their brain was such that they actually wouldn't see blue because it wasn't talked about in the way our children look at the color blue and go blue, 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 green, green, yellow, yellow. And when you actually look across cultures, there are differences in the way we just see color. So imagine sexuality, the way we're programmed by our culture to, to even uh, exhibit or feel our emotions regarding sexuality. You just that, have to figure. You know, th- there is a part, though, that I, um, again, I come back to this. In agreeing that culture is so pivotal into everything that we do, I want to rope culture into the whole equation. Right. But it is possible, I think to devise some studies, and you, you alluded to many types of things that you can, where you can probably, uh, you, you can probably derive some knowledge of the things that culture plus genetics have now led to. Well, or even just, even just genetics. And in some cases, just genetics. Right, like when you study the, well, yeah. when you study cultures from all over the planet, yeah. there are certain things that you could say are, are universal. I, I know what I was going to say. Like, the problem is that even genetics has been influenced by the long, long, but, but evolution of the culture as well. Right. And the culture has certainly been ev- uh, um, influenced by the genetics as well. Right. So if you actually look at the evidence provided by thousands of studies, it's difficult to tell what is driving our specific sexual behaviors. And it's easy to see that sexuality is expressed very differently across cultures. But in general, there seems to be good enough evidence for some fundamental things within evolutionary psychology regarding sexuality. For example, we probably evolved a drive to have sex. Okay, right? That seems yes. like it's probably likely given the data. Yes. We probably evolved a drive to couple with others since across all cultures, there are coupling behaviors, whether, yes. you know, to some degree, whether it's for a month or a year or 10 years or whatever. We also probably evolved a drive to be jealous of sexual competitors. Yep. You know, it makes sense that we would yep. be jealous. We probably evolved a drive to be attracted to people who are at the prime age of reproduction, whatever age that is. Yep. Right? We probably 
did that. We probably evolved gender-specific drives, such as women being attracted to masculine-looking men and men being attracted to feminine-looking women. That all makes sense, right? It would, it would make sense that men would evolve to you know, be sexually attracted to women that look like women, if that makes any sense, right? Yeah. The hips, the boobs, the, the whatever, right? The, you know, it, it, it makes sense. Give, you know, it's not hard to find enough data to, to say very general things about our evolutionary psychology regarding sexuality. But beyond that, the evidence is not convincing to me. There are so many studies claiming very specific drives. For instance, that study that I was talking about before where women evolve a we w- women have evolved a mechanism that when they hear a ticking clock, they want to have a baby. Like these are the sorts of things that are being studied because they've run out of compelling things to get published and so they've they've gone so far into the weeds that it's it's really ridiculous. But did we evolve to be non-monogamous? That's a very difficult question to answer. We got, so sorry to rewind it for a second. It, it's interesting if you want to, and I, I haven't seen that research. Maybe they went through all these lengths, but I would imagine that the burden of proof for you in the ticking clock thing would be okay. You would have to first prove that ticking clocks intrinsically have an association with the passage of time. You would then have to prove that the passage of time can be, in general, detected in the same or equivalent way by a majority of the of the female at least population. You would have to prove that then the notion of the passage of time produces the kind of physiological response that you're talking about. No, I I I, I mean I, I get what you're getting at, but actually let me let me shortcut it and just say, if you studied uh, cultures from around the planet, that a ticking clock actually produce some effect in women, meaning that they filled out a survey saying they were, you know, one, cause essentially they, they said, how, how soon do you want to have a baby? And then they had a ticking clock and they said, how soon do you want to have a baby? And it, you know, it seemed to increase that for women and not for men. Yeah. If you demonstrated that across the globe and the effect size was quite strong, meaning that like it, you know, people went from wanting to have a baby within 10 years to one year. And it was universal across cultures, and it was a large sample size, and all that kind of stuff. Then I'd be convinced. I'd no, be like, "Well, I, geez, there's some there's no, some kind of evolved I, thing." No, know. I would I would be convinced that 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 people answer differently when there is a sonic stress. Okay, well, you can make that speculation, but I so and maybe I would have that argument too. But the fact is, is this is the study had like thirty people in it or fifty sure. people in it from one sure. you know New England college. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and and the effect size was really small. Like it went, and only some women yeah. increased. So the average increased a little bit, but not a lot. And you could absolutely make a speculation that ticking clock in our culture so, well, is associated with your biological clock, yeah. which culturally is a thing. Your, your point is your point is that I don't have to go to the lengths of demanding as much as I'm demanding because the the experiment was so minute so there were so many limitations so many limitations right so did we evolve to be non-monogamous this is a very difficult question to answer when you talk to someone who values monogamy and attachment like i will talk to very intelligent people who are who value monogamy and attachment they will say we absolutely evolved to be monogamous then when you talk to someone who values non-monogamy they will adamantly claim like dan savage that we evolved to be non-monogamous and that religion and sexism are to blame for shoving us into monogamous boxes to me i don't know i'm not convinced either way about what we evolved 
what I will say is that you are absolutely free as an individual to decide what you want for a life as long as you don't harm other people. You could be monogamous and harm someone or not harm someone. You could be non-monogamous and harm someone. It doesn't matter to me. When people utilize this evolutionary psychology like Dan Savage, my guess is is that they're trying to make a case for it's okay to be non-monogamous. They're trying to say, look, you know, so-and-so, if you want to be non-monogamous, then feel free to do that. And let me provide evolutionary psychology data to back up the fact that it's a natural state and that we're actually not naturally monogamous people. And what my what I'm saying is like, science has not proven that, but you don't need science to justify a moral decision regarding whether or not you should be monogamous or non-monogamous. The same, the same goes for being gay or straight. You know, they'll... they'll there's this effort to find a biological basis for evolution and for a certain percentage of our population to be gay. And some of the people that will uh, leap at data regarding that and say, look, you know, we, we evolved to be gay, is they're trying to say, look, we should stop oppressing gay people. And let me prove to you that it's natural and that God created gayness or something. And what I'm saying is, is like, we don't need science for that. We can just look at it at its face value and say, right. it's a, being gay doesn't harm anyone, and right. people should be free to be that. If you want to be non-monogamous, that doesn't harm anyone either. And yes, it's going to go against cultural norms, but cultural norms are bullshit as far as I'm concerned. And if that's the way you want to be, then that's the way you should be. In fact, I, I think you have to be careful with taking that approach, not because it isn't real, but because imagine the approach of saying, uh, hey, I've proven that uh, biologically, um, uh, someone with Down syndrome is born that way. It's like, well, yeah, you, you can. You can look at their genes and things like that. So then I'm going to legislate based on that, right? Well, that's got its own problems. Right. So the, to or your someone's point... someone's born a psychopath. It's like, right, right. does that mean it's justified right. now? So to your point, to your point, it's, it shouldn't be about the, the the science understanding is great in that it will help us understand better where someone's coming from, what yeah. what are their own limitations, things like that. Mm-hmm. But it shouldn't be the reason why we think we should want our society a certain way. Right. Imagine if science came out and said, we evolved to be Republican. Does that mean we should all become Republican? Right. <laughs> I mean, that's ridiculous. But the point is, yeah. is that it, it's, it's, there are it's scientific basis for things and yeah. biology is is interesting and we should definitely study it but it shouldn't guide our our decision about what's right uh, and wrong to, to your point i can very very much guarantee that there will be a time in the future if we don't self-destroy ourselves that we'll be able to to determine if someone's brain is configured for what you were just saying psychopathy mm-hmm. what does that mean yeah <laughs> well, actually, what do we do with that information? Well, it's interesting because if they, if if we had that understanding, my guess is is we'd have more compassion for them. Yeah, that's right. And but it doesn't mean that their behavior is okay. Yeah, uh, just a few more emails. Oh, that that's the point. You wouldn't say, ah, well, they should be allowed to kill, right? Because it is natural. In the same way that if it's natural to be gay, you shouldn't say it's not allowed for them to be gay, right? Because it's not natural, or right. it is natural, or right. it is exactly. Yeah. Now. You know, uh, advocacy is good, and we should always advocate. But anyway, the point—the point of like the listener saying, like, "Look, I've I've read these studies talking about non-monogamy being a non-natural human 
that non-monogamy is more natural than monogamy. I just have to say the data is not convincing on that. Uh, it's possible, but and even uh, if it were, let's say it were right, yeah. we might find it societally more advantageous to promote monogamy, right? And we could make those decisions too, right? Another email from uh, see Sambista. I think uh, he is Brazilian. Your skepticism about your generalizations are right on. About these generalizations are right on about evolutionary psychology. African clubs would there be? You're you're from South America. Would there be a thing called an African club in Brazil? Do you think? In Colombia? Yeah. Well, no, in Brazil. Oh, in Brazil. Brazil's nearby Colombia. Yeah, yeah. Can you imagine something being called an African club? <laughs> anyway, they're saying I don't know. African clubs attract, attract lots of obese women because apparently black men from some parts of Africa prefer bigger women. Wait, wait, wait. Now I'm confused. What is an African club? I don't know. What but the? I, but what, I think what this guy's point is is that uh, he's observing black men in his country. It's not the United States. Mm-hmm. I don't, uh, that the majority of them, and you know, mm-hmm. they're they're they are attracted to, to larger women. Therefore, all these claims about a certain body shape being a biological compulsion for all men to be attracted to is ridiculous because you don't have to look very far mm-hmm. to find a wide variety of what men consider to be attractive, and and it's based on culture. It's based on the culture you're raised in and the time that you're raised, and so. Uh, so he writes, don't worry about the negative comments, he says. So th- thank you very much. Although, you know, again, you could say, oh, but, you know, perhaps they they evolved, you know, or at least culturally evolved right. to prefer uh, more nutrition to people because they didn't have a lot of nutrition. Uh, listener Callie uh, wrote in and said, this is a very interesting and thoughtful podcast indeed as a psychology student myself with a particular interest in evolutionary psychology, I'm glad to hear a valid critique of evolutionary psychology. I am somewhat in love with evolutionary psychology, and so naturally I feel this urge to purge evolutionary psychology from its less-than-average scientific reputation. So it's always good to get some affirmation from an actual evolutionary psychology student. Listener Helen wrote in, I am an evolutionary biologist, so I thought your take was interesting. Ooh, so an evolutionary biologist. Right. Uh, so I thought your take was interesting. I listened to several of your evolutionary psychology podcasts while mowing the lawn. Thanks for that because it's my least favorite chore. Yes, I thought you did a good job introducing the key concepts of evolution. It's like the way I explained evolutionary psychology to my students for the first time. I agreed with your analysis. The main thing I liked was that you questioned their methodologies the issue of sample size, extrapolating data from one population to another, causation versus correlation. It is often boring to read journal articles, so it was fun to have you lay it all out and then analyze it. One more email from listener Aaron McLean. I think he's a patron, and he's a student in my program, and he's about to graduate. And so when I was looking back through all my emails on the topic, I found that he emailed in a couple, a few years ago oh, wow. before he was in before he was in the program, before I uh, met him in person, Aaron McLean, who I like to call A.A. Ron because of <laughs> the key and peel thing, because I think it's funny, is um, congratulations on another quality episode and the final installment of the Evolutionary Psychology series. You explained many aspects of the field in a cogent, informed manner and delivered it in a way that was understandable to all. I enjoyed your brief discussion on the Pride Parade, which I look forward to supporting once I move to Seattle. P.S. I just registered for your family of origin class, and I'm super stoked. 
So what a loser. Yeah. <laughs> Aaron's great. Uh, he is an internship and he's, he's doing great as a therapist. Uh, he's struggling to get his hours and we're trying to figure out solutions to that. And I feel bad for him. That's cause he evolved this way. Yeah. He's actually at the agency just a few blocks that way. Oh. Um, I realized that I basically read a lot of emails in support of my position, which I feel <laughs> really bad about. I don't actually usually like to read emails that say nice things. I like to read them, <laughs> but I don't like to read them on, on the podcast because I feel like that's you know very self-serving. But I just wanted to read them uh, because people brought up some interesting points. And I, I also just wanted to highlight to people that there are many people that are actually being nice to me and not everyone who writes in is a big jerk. Because <laughs> I tend to complain a lot about all the crap I get. I mean, having said that, on a daily... If you just counted the amount of emails and messages I get, I would say 90% of them are hostile. <laughs> um, so that still... Or maybe I just feel like it's that way. But um, you know, anytime I talk about feminism or evolutionary psychology or Milton Erickson... I, I just get this ideological backlash. And so, um, uh, but I have, I'm growing a thicker skin over time. Uh, any final thoughts on this? Because uh, this might be the last time we talk about evolutionary psychology. I was trying to purge all the emails on evolutionary psychology today. Yeah. Well, okay. So I, I have a couple final thoughts. One is, as I was mentioning earlier, I think that we're going to be entering a really interesting time over the next decade where things that humans are not good at, which is pouring over millions and, and billions of details from data and then drawing conclusions, will be made facilitated by computers. And that might produce interesting results in this field as well as many other fields. Mm -hmm. uh, second, um, I totally am on board, I, I think over the last few years or however long we've been having these discussions, I have seen your point and I agree with it. I, when we first started, I, I definitely thought, oh, Kirk's got an axe to grind against evolution or something. But no, then I understood, okay, okay, it's really with these methodologies and stuff. Um, and, I, and I also feel a little bit of empathy for a lot of the people that gravitate towards it because it feels, like you've said, it feels so good to say, oh, that's why I'm this way, or that's why that happened. And um, so it's it's hard to be told, well, you can't necessarily conclude that. <laughs> right. Believe me, as someone yeah. who lives in psychology and research, we don't know shit. And that is terrible to think about. It's anxiety-provoking. Believe me, I feel that anxiety, and I felt it. And when I go to my doctor, and I'm like, if you don't you don't know shit as much as I don't know shit, my my health is in your hands. My God, we are, are all screwed. And not to say that physicians don't know things because they do, but there's so much that they don't know, and we just don't know much yet. And in a hundred, two hundred, a thousand years, we're gonna look back and go like how quaint they were in 2016 when they thought they <laughs> when they thought they knew things, and they didn't know anything, and. We just have to accept that. You know, we have to grieve that loss that we were basically kind of told that we, we know everything, you know? And so I understand that anxiety, but, and I feel it, but I've accepted it into my life. Mm -hmm. Well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me. Please take care of yourself and evolve carefully because you deserve it.